You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We rely on the financial support of listeners like yourself to keep going. If you'd like to support diverse voices on your radio, go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction In the fields of bodies burning As the war machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the first edition of the 2020 Anarchist World This Week. If you're listening to this program, you've survived 2019 and your New Year's Eve shenanigans. So I thought, being the 1st of uh, January, I thought maybe a good thing would be to do is look at the question of reconciliation by looking at the Tanaminoe Morbohina story, because let's not forget that two years ago, that uh, delegates uh, from most Aboriginal groups in this country uh, put out the Uluru Statement, which at its heart had uh, three basic principles. One is treaty, two is truth-telling, and uh, the third one was reconciliation. And I think the Tanaminoe and Morbohina story and the Tanaminoe and Morbohina commemoration, which will be held at midday on Monday the 20th of January in Melbourne at the Tanaminoe and Morbohina Monument uh, at the corner of uh, Victoria and Franklin Street in Melbourne uh, highlights the central issue of reconciliation between colonisers and the original inhabitants, people who had lived on this land for over 60,000 years. Now, this is a story which has many, many parts to it. If you want to have a good look at it, you can go to the tunnamall.org website. That's T-U-N-N-E-R-M-A-U-L. M-A-U-L org website and uh, the full story will be there and we look forward to seeing you at midday on the 20th of January, that's Monday the 20th of January at the corner of Victoria and uh, Franklin Street in Melbourne, the Tanaminoe Morbohina Monument which was erected in 2016 uh, to get involved, uh, to hear guest speakers and then to move on from there to the old Queen Victoria Market site at the place where we think Tanaminoe and Morbohina most likely were buried. And I think this story highlights the whole colonial history of this country and it highlights the unfinished business that occurs. And it's quite interesting that in July this year I was in Tasmania and one of the things I wanted to do was to go to Cape Grim, uh, a central site in the Tanaminoe and Morbohina saga. And interestingly, when I got to... Uh, Within about 50 kilometres of Cape, of Cape Grim in northwest Tasmania, uh, the public road became a private road. And there were huge signs, you know, talking about special laws and trespass laws. And what was even more fascinating was the same company 
that acquired this land in 1824 was still still owned huge parts of uh, northwest Tasmania and are the site of one of the most pivotal uh, events in the history between Indigenous and Indigenous Australians is not available to uh, uh, ordinary people. So I think that's just an interesting aside. So if you do decide to go to northwest Tasmania to uh, visit Cape Grim, well, you can break the law and take that private road and see where it gets you. Now, the Tanaminawai and Morbohina saga, what's in a name? Tanaminawai, the son of Kiherni Boihina, was born on Robbins Island in Tasmania in 1812. He was also known as Pive, Napoleon, Jack of Cape Grim and Tanaparaway. When he was born, European sealers had been hunting elephant seals and kangaroos on Robbins Island in northwest Tasmania for the last eight years. By the time he had turned 13, nearly all the elephant seals and kangaroos on the island had been wiped out. One year later, the Tasmanian Land Company moved onto the Northwest Tribes' land, establishing sheep stations at Circular Head and Cape Grim. As I said before, Cape Grim is out of the reach of ordinary Australians. We've got a sea which is actually uh, being hemmed in by a private property. Same company, uh, variations of the same company that was given the land in 1824 by the British royalty continue to own much of that land. On the 27th of November 1827, an Aboriginal came across sheep and several shepherds at Cape Grim. The meeting ended in disaster for the Northwest tribes when one Aboriginal man was shot dead and one shepherd was wounded in the scuffle that developed when the shepherds attempted to entice the Aboriginal women into their huts. A few days later, the Aborigines drove a mob of sheep to their deaths over the cliffs at Victory Hill in revenge for the Aboriginal man's death. Six weeks later, the shepherds ambushed a group of Aboriginals mutton birding, killing 30 men, women and children. They threw their bodies over the same cliffs, giving Cape Grim its name. And over 100 and almost 200 years later, Cape Grim continues to be forbidden, has, still has forbidden access. The Northwest tribes continue to suffer at the hands of the sealers and shepherds. Aboriginal men were shot on sight, women were kidnapped and taken to the sealers' camps on Kangaroo Island and southern Victoria, where they were forced into sexual slavery. Within three years of white colonisation, over only 60 of the 500 members of the Northwest tribe had survived the onslaught. In June 1830, George Augustus Robertson, the chief protector of Aborigines in Tasmania, reached northwest Tasmania. He was attempting to round up the remnants of the three tribes of Tasmania and resettle them on an island off the north coast to prevent them from being exterminated. The only Aborigines in northwest Tasmania he came into contact with were six abducted women and one abducted man, an 18-year-old youth who had been named Jack of Cape Grim. Robinson forced the sealers to give up the Northwest tribal Aborigines by threatening to prosecute them for shooting their husbands. Robinson persuaded the Aborigines to come with him, promising they would be able to return to their tribal lands. Tanaminawai escaped from Robinson a few months after his initial capture because he realised that Robinson had no intention of returning him to Robins Island. He was recaptured by Robinson soon after and became part of the group that accompanied Robinson in the search for the Big River people between October 1830 and January 1831. 
Tanaminaway developed a long and complex relationship with Robinson. In October 1835, he accompanied him to Flinders Island. Robinson held Tanaminaway in high regard and spoke of him as an exceedingly willing and industrious young man who was stout and well-made, of good temper, and performed his work equal to any white man. Morbohina. Robert Smallboy, Jemmy, Timmy, Tinny, Jimmy, Robert of Ben Lomond and Bob were some of the European names Morbohina was known as. Morbohina came from one of the inland tribes that had lived on the Ben Lomond highlands. He came into contact with Robertson as a relatively young man and in early 1830 accompanied him, his party of white assistants and the five survivors of the Bruni Island people, Waraday, his two sons Peter and Davy. Bruni and two young girls, Dre and Pagaray, on the difficult journey along the West Coast to help persuade the West Coast guerrilla bands to lay down their arms and move to Flinders Island. Morbohina was also part of Governor, Governor Arthur's infamous Black Line campaign that was conducted later that year to drive Tasmanian Aborigines away from the settled areas. I should say, stolen areas. Morbohina joined the dynamic leader of the Stony Creek tribe, Kanahulanga Umara, and Tanamilwe in October 1831 to find the Big River tribe and force them to join Robertson's group. In 1832, Morbohina accompanied Robertson on his second foray down the west coast. In 1835, Robertson boasted the entire Tasmanian Aboriginal population had been removed to Flinders Island. He received a reward of £1,000 for his service to the government, equivalent to millions of dollars, about $10 million in today's uh, money value. The 33-year war between the European colonisers and the Tasmanian Aborigines was finally over. Over 10,000 Aborigines had lived in Tasmania when Europeans first colonised Tasmania in 1803. By 1835, less than 350 had survived the Holocaust, Three-quarters of those who were transferred to Flinders Island died by 1837. That's within two years. Only 89 Tasmanian Aborigines were left when Robertson decided to offer his services to the New South Wales government. The Tasmanian government, keen to see the back of the last of the Tasmanians, offered to bankroll his generous offer as long as he was allowed to take all the Tasmanian Aborigines that had survived the European Holocaust to the Australian mainland. Move them out. George Augustus Robertson had big plans for himself and his Aborigines. He never had any intention of returning the survivors of the 33-year Holocaust back to their tribal lands. Robertson wanted to use his domesticated Aborigines to civilise the mainland blacks. Even before John Batman set up his illegal settlement at Port Phillip, Bay, the governor of Van Diemen's Land, Sir George Arthur, wrote on the 27th of September 1835 to the Colonial Office in England, informing, informing that George Robertson was willing to take his Aborigines from Flinders Island to the newly established settlement at Portland Bay on the Australian mainland to open a friendly communication with the natives there. The Tasmanian authorities, keen to deport the last of the Tasmanian Aborigines, even offered to pay for their maintenance in New Holland. The New South Wales authorities strongly opposed the deportation of the Tasmanian Aborigines to the Australian mainland, although the British colonial office was in favour of the move. 
George Arthur Hyatt, Hyatt that the deportation of the last surviving Tasmanian Aborigines to Flinders Island had greatly increased the value of Crown land in Tasmania. And he believed Robertson could, using the same tactics used in Tasmania, do the same for the value of Crown land on the mainland. A British House of Commons Select Committee in 1837 recommended that a protector of Aborigines be appointed at Port Phillip because of the numerous reports of atrocities that were committed by the new settlers against the Aboriginal population. Governor Arthur and the new Tasmanian Governor Franklin lobbied to have Robinson take up the post of Chief Protector at Port Phillip. Governor Franklin highlighted in August 1838 that life would be safer for the Port Phillip settlers if they allowed Robinson to bring across the Tasmanian Aboriginal survivors from Flinders Island to Port Phillip because of the mixing of domesticated blacks with the less civilised tribes at Port Phillip would make them less dangerous. He repeated Governor, offers, Governor Arthur's offer to pay for their upkeep at Port Phillip. A New South Wales Legislative Council committee headed by the Anglican Archbishop of Tasmania claimed in 1838 it would be a serious mistake to let the Tasmanian Aborigines on the mainland because of the risk of violence, rape and murder. The committee was concerned the lessons the Tasmanian Aborigines had learnt in their 33-year war against the white colonisers could encourage the local Aborigines to do the same, fierce and hostile deportment towards the settlers. The Legislative Council Committee suggested that if the Tasmanian Aborigines were civilised, they should be set free and not deported to the mainland. On the 12th of April, December 1838, Robinson was appointed Chief Protector of Aborigines at Port Phillip. He was allowed to bring one family of Tasmanian Aborigines with him to act as his personal attendants. The move. Sir George Gipps, the Governor of New South Wales, made it clear to colonial office in England that he did not support Robinson's plan to bring across the Tasmanian Aborigines to Port Phillip. He only allowed Robinson to bring one family with him to act as his personal attendants. Robinson, full of his own self-importance, brought 16 of the surviving 89 Tasmanian Aborigines with him to Port Phillip. Governor Gibbs informed Robinson that the New South Wales government would only provide rations for a family of four. Robinson and the 16 Aborigines from Flinders Island arrived at Port Phillip in January 1839. He intended to use the Tasmanian Aborigines as mediators and educators. Even a man as hardened as Robinson was shocked by the disease, destitution and wretchedness displayed by the Port Phillip Aborigines who were living on the outskirts of Melbourne. Remember, this is only four years after colonisation began in Port Phillip. Robinson wanted Victorian Aborigines to be able to continue to live on government-owned remnants of land in the districts they had traditionally lived on. The Chief Protector introduced the Tasmanian Aborigines to the Yarra tribes almost as soon as he arrived. He noted in his diary, "...the reception was of the utmost friendly character." James Dredge, William Thomas, Edward Parkins, Charles Seawright came to Australia from England to take up their positions as assistant protectors. The assistant protectors set up their tents on an old Aboriginal camping ground on the south side of the Arra. Robinson moved into an abandoned police hut and the Tasmanian Aborigines had to build grass shelters for themselves. The party organised a great feast in February 1839 to which all the Port Phillip Aborigines in Melbourne's town folk were invited 
Beef, mutton and bread were supplied to everyone. The Aborigines initially refused to eat the food prepared for them because they were concerned they would be poisoned, as poison was liberally being used by the squatters to solve their Aboriginal problem. Games and competitions were held and fireworks were set off to show the Port Phillip Aborigines that the protectors had come with good intentions. The Aborigines mistakenly assumed they would be supplied with free rations and goods to compensate them for the loss of their lands. Governor Gipps, concerned about the cost involved, complained to the Land Office. He severely limited the rations that could be given to Aborigines after October 1839. The assistant protectors deployed. George Augustus Robinson had four assistant protectors to help him ameliorate the lot of local tribes in the face of introduced disease, the ravages of alcohol and tribal warfare, interracial massacres and poisoning. The chief protector of Aborigines was expected to do his job despite overt hostility from white settlers and the press and very little financial support from the Sydney Treasury. When Robertson arrived with 16 Aborigines from Flinders Island, no government supplies were allocated to the Aborigines. Some months later, some months after their arrival, Superintendent Latrobe from Port provided rations for four of them. The Tasmanian Aborigines were expected to look after themselves. Robinson's four assistants had been appointed by the British Colonial Office. None had been to Australia before. Charles Dredge, Edward Parker and William Thomas were Methodist school teachers. The fourth assistant, Charles Seavright, was a former military officer who had been forced to sell his military office to pay off his gambling debts. On the 26th of March, 1839, after the new assistant protectors had familiarised themselves with their positions, they were allocated areas of responsibility by Robinson. Robinson, sorry, Dredge was sent to North East Victoria, Parker the North West Victoria, Seavright to the Western Districts and Thomas was responsible for Melbourne and Western Port. Seavright was shocked to find that on his first journey to the Western Districts, two stations he visited had Aboriginal skulls placed over the doors as a warning to any Aborigines that came to the station. Robinson was more interested in creating an empire for himself than taking an interest in the plight of the Aborigines he was employed to protect. Faced with hundreds of Aborigines camped around Melbourne, many of them dying from typhus fever, dysentery, syphilis, pneumonia, the cold and famine, as rations had been removed, Robinson lost interest in the plight of the 16 Aborigines he brought across with him from Flinders Island. Some were loaned out to work for Robinson's sons, others were expected to look after themselves. On the 2nd of October 1840, the New South Wales Governor released Robinson from any responsibility for the Tasmanians' Aborigines he had brought to Port Phillip. The Mile Creek Massacre, a pivotal moment in Australian history. In June 1838 at Mile Creek, north of Sydney, 28 Aborigines, mainly women and children, were tied up and hacked to pieces with swords. The dismembered bodies were partially burnt. Seven assigned convicts were brought to trial for the massacre. They were acquitted by a jury after 15 minutes' discussion. The Anti-Slavery Society in England and the Aborigines Protection Society in London were disgusted by the massacre, the trial and the comments made by the jurors involved in the trial. I look on the blacks as a set of monkeys and the earlier they are exterminated from the face of the earth, 
the better. That's the opinion of one of the jury members that acquitted the seven. An active Aborigines Protection Society in London and a sympathetic Lionel administration in England forced New South Wales Governor Gibbs to hold a retrial. After the second trial, the assigned convicts working as shepherds were found guilty. They were hung soon after the second trial on the 18th of December 1838. Interestingly, their masters, the squatters who ordered the massacre, were never questioned, charged or brought to trial. The seven assigned convicts were executed to keep the land office off the New South Wales government's back. In May 1839, Gipps, the New South Wales governor, who was also responsible for the newly established Port Phillip settlement, declared in the government consent he wanted to bring the settlers and the Aborigines to equal and indiscriminate justice. The hanging of the seven assigned convicts in Sydney in late 1838 and Governor Gipps' announcement five months later caused consternation among the Port Phillip settlers. The Port Phillip press funded against pseudo-philanthropists who didn't know what they were talking about. Seems nothing ever changes, does it, listeners? The open warfare that had been occurring between Aborigines and the squatters in the Port Phillip region and the rest of Victoria became a secret covert war of destruction almost overnight. Nobody talked about what was happening. Bodies of Aborigines with gunshot wounds were dismembered and burnt. Roberts, Robertson's assistant protectors were shunned. William to- Thomas, the assistant protector for the Melbourne region, reported the squatters and their shepherds were incensed about the Sydney hangings. Thomas reported that poisoning had become the favourite weapon of the coloniser and the blacks stopped accepting flour, milk and bread from the squatters because of their fear of poisoning. The local Aborigines now found themselves in an impossible situation. Driven from their lands at the point of a gun, concerned about the very real possibility that their provisions were being offered, poison provisions that were offered to them by the squatters were poisoned, and unable to hunt and gather food on their traditional lands, many died of starvation. Those like Tullamarine and Jinjin, who stole potatoes growing in South Yarra or killed sheep to survive, were treated as criminals. The lucky ones like Tullamarine and Jinjin were arrested. The unlucky ones were legally hunted down and slaughtered. I mean, it was much better to be a sheep than an Aborigine in those days. From little things, big things grow. In 1840, the Dandenongs in the Western Port region were dense bush. The stations set up by the squatters were established in clearings they had hacked from the scrub. The Tasmanian Aborigines began their campaign in the Dandenong region. They robbed Mr Horseful, a squatter living in the Dandenongs of his fowling piece, walking up to 30 miles a day on established Bunurong tracks. They robbed a number of other stations. They mainly stole firearms, sugar, flour and tea. The firearms they collected were much more than they could use themselves. Considering they were trying to move quickly through the bush to evade capture, it is highly likely they were collecting firearms to distribute to the local Aborigines. It is recorded their first strike against the squatters was conducted with the help of local Aborigines. The Tasmanian Aborigines raided the hut of Mr Watson, the overseer of a small open-cut cliff face mine at Cape Patterson that had been established to provide coal for Melbourne. Following the normal practice, they spared the women in the hut, ordering them into the bush, stole guns and ammunition 
and then set fire to the hut, ensuring that it couldn't be used by the settlers in the future. On one of the few occasions when they didn't get away without exchanging shots, the hut's overseer and his son-in-law, Walter Eman, began shooting at the party. The Aborigines fired back, wounding Walter in the leg. Walter Inman and Mr Watson made their way to a squatter's station for a system. A party of seven whalers who were walking along the beach from their camp at Ladies Bay came across the deserted mining settlement. Soon after, shots were exchanged. Seeing some people a few hundred metres away in the bush, who they thought were the miners, two of the whalers, William Cook and Yankee, went into the bush to investigate. Within five minutes of them leaving, two shots rang out. All-out welfare. Warfare. All-out warfare. The Tasmanian Aborigines set up an ambush for Mr Watson and his son, son-in-law, son William Inman. The two whalers, William Cook and Yankee, stumbled into the ambush prepared for Watson and Inman. Cook dropped dead as a result of a gunshot wound through the ear. Yankee, shot in the side, was killed by a number of blows to the head. Samuel Evans, one of the whalers who was concerned about the missing men, organised the rest of the party to look for them. They walked to the path of Watson and Inman, who, concerned about the approaching men, shot over their heads. One of the whalers who continued the search for the men stumbled across their bodies on the beach. The whalers and miners saw the party of Aborigines who killed the whalers on a nearby hill. They chased them, but soon lost sight of them. They returned, burying the bodies near the mouth of the Powlett River. Superintendent Latrobe had been notified two days earlier, the 4th of October 1841, that a party of Aborigines had robbed Mossy Station at Westernport. Latrobe decided that same night to send troops to deal with the situation. Mr Powlett, the Commissioner of Crown Lands, who came to Westernport to sell off the Aborigines' land to the squatters, and two police joined Lieutenant Samuel Rawson of the 28th Regiment, who had been sent to Westernport in early October, to protect the squatters from Aboriginal attack. On the 10th of October, four days after the killing of Yankee and Cook, Rawson and Powlett were notified about their deaths. They left in an open rowboat, hoping to quickly find the Tasmanian Aborigines. By this time, 14 armed men were involved in the hunt for the Aborigines. After a fruitless day of searching, they decided to return to Melbourne to find Aboriginal trackers to help them in their hunt. On their way back, they called in to see Mr Westerway and his labourers, who told them they had been shot at during the night. On the 29th of October 1841, almost a month after the first race had started, the Port Phillip Herald, a newspaper that makes the Murdoch press look like a uh, raving left-wing lunatics, carried the first report about the raids across Dandenong and Western Port that would be conducted by the heavily armed Aborigines. Rawson and Powlett arrived in Dandenong on the 20th of October to meet up with a party of six policemen, six black trackers, Mr Thomas the Aboriginal Protector for the Melbourne area, a cart, a tent and a few squatters. The Tasmanian Aborigines had travelled from Cape Patterson back to Dandenong on the same day the search party arrived to steal more guns, ammunition and supplies from the squatters. On the 30th of October, the Aborigines laid down the gauntlet to the pursuing party, leaving messages at a station that they would not be taken alive and would fight to the last man and woman. By now... The police party had swirled to 18 men on horseback and six on foot. Endgame. The Tasmanian Aborigines arrived at Anderson Station on the 17th of November. They waited till the men had left and then entered the house. 
Finding two women and a child in the house, Tanaminawal led them out and stood guard over them while Morbohina ransacked the house. The Tasmanians took all the webs they could find and all the supplies they needed. In all the raids they carried out, they never harmed any women or children. The men that were shot in the raids they carried out were usually shot in the heat of battle. They burned down the houses they raided to drive the squatters back to Melbourne. Although they hoped the local Aborigines would be inspired by their example, not one joined their little group. Tanaminaway, Morbohina, Truganini, Putirana and Planobina were alone in the dense bush. It wasn't for the assistance of the Aboriginal black trackers who became involved in the chase because they were promised they would receive guns and provisions for their help. It is highly unlikely the Tasmanian survivors of a bitter and brutal 33-year war against the British in Tasmania would ever have would ever have been captured. Ironically, the black trackers received a few trinkets and blankets for their troubles, although they had been allowed to carry ju- guns during the chase. The following day, the pursuit party, which had now grown to 29 men on horseback, arrived at Anderson Station. They were confident that with the help of the black trackers, they would soon overtake the two men and three women travelling on foot, who had caused consternation and panic among the squatters in the Dandenong, Westerport and Mornington Peninsula. The following day, they were camped less than a mile from where the Tasmanians had set up their camp. That evening, William Thomas, the assistant protector for Westernport and Mornington, volunteered to negotiate with the Tasmanian Aborigines. The rest of the party, believing the end of the chase was near, refused Thomas' permission to negotiate. Soldiers, police, squatters and black trackers woke up about 4am on Saturday the 20th of November. They moved out in single file, armed to the teeth, hoping to end the Tasmanians' rebellion by daybreak. They walked about a mile through a lagoon and across sandhills until the Aboriginal trackers pointed out the smoke coming from a Tasmanian's fire that was less than 30 metres away. The party was standing on top of a sandhill that overlooked the camp that had been set up in the gully below. They formed a semicircle. The men less than two metres away from each other had advanced to within two metres of the camp fire when all hell broke loose. The Tasmanians' dogs rushed at the posse. The Tasmanians tried to slip into the scrub amid a hail of bullets. Samuel Rawson, believing all the Tasmanians were dead, entered the camp. He found two of the Aboriginal women hiding under blankets. After putting handcuffs on them, he put a gun to their heads and forced them to call out to those in the scrub to surrender. A woman emerged from the scrub covered in blood. She'd sustained a superficial wound to her head the only casualty from the 30 to 40 shots that were fired at the heads of the sleeping Aborigines. One of the men who tried to escape from the scrub was captured, while the other man who had made his escape decided to return when the women who had guns trained at their heads pleaded for him to return. The five freedom fighters were handcuffed and had chairs, chains put on their legs. While they were quietly awaited their fate, the ravenous shoulders, black trackers, police and squatters made cakes from the 60 pounds of flour and sugar the Tasmanians had with them. The prisoners were marched through the bush and arrived in Melbourne six days later. They were taken before the police magistrate, Major St John, who took evidence from 12 witnesses. He committed Tanaminaway and Morbohina for the murder of William Cook and Yankee and the three women, Putirana, Truganini and Planabina, has accessories before and after the fact. 
Yes. Governor Gibbs, Judge Gibbs. The judge, some believe to be cracked. Now, Judge Gibbs, Judge Willis, sorry, Judge Willis, it caused so much consternation in the New South Wales Supreme Court that he was the first Supreme Court judge in Victoria who's moved to Victoria to get out of the government's hair. Now, legal manoeuvrings. Judge Willis, magnanimity towards Aborigines did not extend to conflicts between the colonisers and Aborigines. George Bolden squatted an area near the Hopskins River in the Western District. When an Aboriginal man, woman and child attempted to cross his property to reach a camp set up by Aboriginal protector Charles Seawright for Aborigines in the Western District, he attacked them on horseback with whips. Tatkia, the Aboriginal man acting in self-defence, tried to pull Bolden off his horse. Bolden shot him in the stomach and beat the Aboriginal woman to death. The child escaped to Seawright's Aboriginal camp. Charles Seawright, the Aboriginal protector, sickened by what had happened, reported the matter to Superintendent Latrobe. Bolden was put on trial, but was acquitted on the direction of Judge Willis, the judge who was about to be involved in the trial of Tanaminawe, Morbohina, Putirana, Planabina and Traganini. The jury, unhappy with Judge Willis's decision, told Bolden he did not leave the court without a stain on his character. In his reasoning for his acquittal, Judge Willis stated there'd be no reservation in the grant, lease or licence from government in favour of the Aborigines. The possessor had also a right to turn off by all lawful means any person, whether white or black, who should trespass on his run. Superintendent Latrobe, shocked at Willis's judgment, asked Governor Gibbs whether the legal principle established by the case was sound. He believed there was a manifest inhumanity in attempting to exclude all Aborigines from the land. Latrobe was concerned that Willis' judgment meant that the squatters could recommence massacring the Aboriginal population. In Latrobe's own words, it might induce a return to the lamentable scenes of 1839 and the earlier part of 1840. Latrobe was alluding to the numerous massacres that occurred during this period, as the squatters fanned across Victoria. Willis clearly stated that unlike the Bon John case, which involved, which he'd heard previously, which involved uh, warfare between blacks, to which he had no jurisdiction, the court had jurisdictions in matters of aggression between blacks and white. On the 20th of December 1841, the five Van Diemen land Aborigines appeared before Judge Willis. A man described by Governor Gipps, the New South Governor in 1843, as an apologist for the cruelest practices by some of the least respectable of the settlers on the Aborigines. Legal Manoeuvrings Part 2. If the defendants were unable to understand English or had been ignorant of Christian values, there is a slight possibility they would have been spared prosecution. Unfortunately... Robin's civilising influence and his adamant assertions they had knowledge about their principles of religion and they knew right from long sealed their fate. Judge Willis always believed they were intelligent enough to understand court proceedings and didn't believe the humanity of the law that extended to an idiot or a lunatic extended to the five Aborigines standing trial in his court. In 1841, Aborigines were not equal in the eyes of the law. They could not testify or lay charges in the courts. 
The only way they could achieve even a modicum of justice was for a white witness to testify on their behalf. Considering the crimes against humanity that we perpetrated against Aborigines were conducted in undeclared frontier war, where those squatters doing the killing were the only white witnesses, the ruling against Aboriginal evidence ensured that crimes committed against Aborigines never made it to the colonial courts. Five Aborigines were executed in Melbourne for crimes against whites between 1842 and 1848. Only one white man was convicted in court for killing Aborigines during this period, and he only received two months' incarceration for his crime. Considering the legal gun was loaded against the Aboriginal defendants because they couldn't call Aboriginal witnesses to speak in their own defence or even allowed to tender an alibi, Redmond Barry, the defence counsel for the Aboriginals for the Port Phillip region, mounted a spirit defence on the mere half. Just in case the name Redmond Barry seems familiar, the young Irish Aboriginal defence counsel is the same Redmond Barry who as a judge presided over the trials of a number of the Eureka miners charged with high treason in 1855 and sentenced Ned Kelly to hang almost 30 years later in 1888. But that's another story. As a public defender, Redmond Barry canvassed a number of interesting arguments in Judge Willis's court. Redmond Barry began by arguing that the defendants were not naturalised subjects of the Queen, and half the jury should be composed of people not subjects of the Queen. Judge Willis scoffed at this novel idea and refused to grant Barry's request. The Crown Prosecutor, faced with the dilemma that one of his main witnesses, Samuel Evans, one of the whalers who witnessed the whalers' murders, had not turned up at the, to the trial, wanted to drop the charges of murder against the defendants, as the only evidence the prosecution had was the defendants' own confessions. Judge Willis, in no mood to accept this argument, ruled the murder charge would stand, because he accepted Truganini's pre-trial confession that Tanaminawe and Morbohina were responsible for the murders of the whalers. As the trial progressed, Barry highlighted the evidence was largely circumstantial and the confessions should not be accepted because they were from people in a state of terror. He attempted to win the jury's sympathy by highlighting that what every settler in the colony knew but refused to acknowledge. We must remember the course of the destruction, at first insidious and private, then open and declared, which eventually swept a numerous nation of the face of their native country and transported the remnant to a foreign to them distant shore. Barry asked the jury how people treated in this manner could be asked to quietly forget it happened to them and be expected not to exact revenge for their dispossession and misery. He was attempting to get the jury to put themselves in the place of the defendants, hoping the very people who had been responsible for their dispossession and murder would be able to identify and sympathise with the Aborigines. In his closing address, Barry highlighted the circumstantial nature of the evidence and the inappropriate manner by which the confessions were obtained. He pointed out that not one witness could identify any of the accused. Barry urged the jury to acquit the defendants of the crimes they were charged with. Late Monday night, on the 20th of December 1841, the jury came to their decision in just 30 minutes. They found Tanaminawea Morbohina guilty of murder and acquitted Truganini, Putirana and Planavina of all charges. The jury, moved by Barry's arguments, recommended mercy for the men on account of general good character and the peculiar circumstances under which they were placed. The next morning, 
the five were returned to court for sentencing. Judge Willis discharged the three women into Robinson's care and then addressed the accused. By the confessions of Bob Mulbohina and the statements of Truganini, there can be no doubt of your guilt. The punishment that awaits you is not one of vengeance, but one of terror. You'll be taken to the place of execution and be hanged by the neck until dead. The newspapers applauded Judge Willis's sentence. The Port Phillip Herald funded against the system of Aboriginal protectors. It seems the broadside that is regularly launched against bleeding heart liberals in the black arm arm band brigade today was exactly the same type of garbage that was peddled in the media in 1841. Referring to the hanging of seven shepherds for the Mile Creek Massacre in New South Wales a few years earlier, the Port Phillip Herald pointed out, while the laws protect the black, the white man's blood must remain unavenged. Not to be outdone. The Port Phillip Gazette highlighted the case against the five Tasmanian Aborigines so showed the Aboriginal people's ineradicable love of destruction as a consequence, the imperative necessity of coercion in their management. The next day, Willis wrote to Superintendent Latrobe reporting he had released the women into Robinson's care at the men's property on Flinders Island, the sheep they had been given as a reward for helping Robinson in Tasmania should be forfeited to the Crown. Willis stated some should be given to the inhabitants of Flinders Island and parts should be sold off to provide a reward for the civilians who were involved in the Tasmanian Aborigines' capture. Latrobe forwarded the trial notes onto Governor Gibbs in New South Wales, regretting that he was unable to advance anything in favour of the two male convicts now in jail are awaiting his excellence decision in any degree, blah, blah, blah. The Sydney authorities acted quickly. On the 5th of January 1842, the Colonial Secretary wrote Latrobe authorising the execution of Tanamir and Mulbohina in the usual manner on Tuesday the 20th of January 1842 or as soon as thereafter as Your Honour may appoint. The Deputy Sheriff was authorised by Latrobe on the 13th of January 1842 to carry out the executions on Tuesday the 20th of January 1842, giving him just seven days to to prepare for Melbourne's first execution. Let's not forget, Tanaminawe and Morbohina were the first people publicly executed by the state in Victoria. Carnival time. On the eve of the execution, that's the 19th of January, 1842, Morbohina refused his supper. Tanaminawe, on the other hand, ate heartily and smoked his pipe with the utmost tranquillity. The next morning, Tuesday the 20th January 1842, people began arriving at the gallows, trying to find the best spot to view the hangings. At 8am, the prisoners emerged from the Eastern Watch House, dressed entirely in white, including white calico caps. They were herded into a cart that thankfully much of the spectators' annoyance had cloth stretched round it to give the condemned men some privacy. Mounted and border police led the cart through the city to Gallows Hill. The sight of, of the current Tanaminoe Mulbohina monument at the corner of Franklin and Victoria Street in Melbourne, then at the edge of the Melbourne. The Port Phillip Herald reported an immense crowd between four to five thousand people, the greater part of whom were men, were women and children. From the laughing and merry faces which were assembled, the scene resembled more an appearance of the race course than a scene of death. 
The walls and body of the new jail were literally packed with spectators awaiting the awful scene as if it were a bull bait or a prize ring. A quarter of Victoria's white population had come to see the hanging. The detachment of infantry paraded in their Sunday best tried to keep some order in the crowd. Aborigines had climbed into the surrounding trees to witness the executions. The cart eventually drew up at the gallows. The Port Phillip Gazette reported that the condemned men's arrival was met in explosions of uproarious merriment. Their arrival was followed by a 20-minute farce of prayer reading, which was interrupted, of course, to cut it short. By this time, Morbohin had become extremely agitated. His moans, reported the Gazette, were terrible to hear. Morbohin's feelings broke out in the most heart-rendering groans. The terrified and pitiless looks he threw around, pressing against everyone that spoke to him as if to catch some chance of salvation, was terrible to witness. He trembled violently. James Dredge, one of the assistant Aboriginal protectors, wrote in his diary, The executioner tied their hands before they went up the ladder and chains hung from their ankles, making it nearly impossible for them. The poor wretches in getting up the ladder, deprived of the use of their hands, were obliged to cling to the bars with their knees and chins and be partly dragged and be partly pushed up for slaughter. Tanaminaway calmly ascended the flimsy ladder. Morbohina was dragged up the ladder after Tanaminaway had reached the scaffold. The crowd, seeing Morbohina's shaking violently on the sca- scaffold, went quiet. The executioner fixed the noose as pulled down their nightcaps over their heads and hurried down the ladder. As the preacher uttered the key words, in the midst of life we are in death, the executioner's assistant pulled the rope. The, poor, the drop only descended halfway and a terrible scene followed. Thus the two poor wretches got jumbled and twisted and writhed convulsively in a manner that horrified even the most hardened. The executioner and his assistant did not seem to know what to do. A bystander rushed forward and knocked away the obstruction. Tanaminaway died instantly. Morbohina's noose had become displaced and he kept struggling for a number of minutes before he was strangled to death. The carnival move that dominated the scene before the execution evaporated. The crowd angrily turned on to the executioner who grinned horribly, a ghastly smile. The bodies were left on the scaffold for the regulation hour. They were cut down from their nooses, placed in coffins and taken to the Aboriginal section of the cemetery, now Melbourne's thriving Victoria Marcus. On the way to the cemetery, their clothes were removed from their bodies and executioners perk. The chief Aboriginal protector was waiting for their coffins at the cemetery beside their open graves. John Davis, the executioner, soon found that the New South Wales government had little interest in honouring the Port Phillip authorities' promises to him. He had been promised £10 and a ticket of leave, which enabled a convict to obtain employment locally for his services. After initial refusal, he was only given a gratuity. He was only given £5 for his work. He was not granted a ticket of leave till the 1st of December 1843, almost two years after he carried out the execution. What happened to the other Tasmanian? Robinson was upset that Judge Willis had made him personally responsible for the three women who were acquitted of the charges laid against them. Latrobe finally agreed to pay for the remaining Tasmanian Aborigines to be returned to Flinders Island. Traganini, Planabina and Putirana, David Bruni, Walter Arthur and Jack Allen, a Tasmanian Aborigine who had been brought across from Tasmania by Batman in 1835, were returned to Flinders Island. Peter Bruin and Johnny Franklin remained in Victoria. 
nine of the original party of 16 had died during the three years they were at Port Phillip. Those return, that returned to Flinders Island sought better living conditions and organised the Flinders Island community to petition Queen Victoria in 1846 to grant them some land and remove the European superintendent from the island. The colonial office in London closed down the Flinders Island community as a result of their protest and returned many of the Flinders Island Aborigines to the mainland. In 1847, 45 Aborigines were removed from Flinders Island and transferred to Oyster Cove outside Hobart. Oyster Cove had been abandoned as a convict settlement because of the harsh and damp conditions there. By 1856, 29 of the Tasmanian Aborigines who had been transferred to Oyster Cove had died, mainly as a result of respiratory diseases. By 1868, only three remained at Oyster Cove. Truganini was the last survivor of the Oyster Cove community. Aborigines who had remained on the islands in Bass Strait living in sealess camps invited her to live with them in 1872. She refused, preferring to live near her traditional lands. She died in 1876, aged 64, the so-called the last of the Tasmanians in the public's eye. Two years later, her body was dug up at the Royal Society of Tasmania and put on public display for almost a century. Despite protests... From the Tasmanian Museum, her bones were finally cremated on the 1st of May 1876 and her ashes were scattered on her tribal fishing grounds by members of Tasmania's thriving Aboriginal community. The struggle between squatters and Aborigines in Victoria intensified over the next few years. Hundreds, possibly thousands of Aborigines were shot, clubbed to death and poisoned. Their bodies were thrown over cliffs, chopped up, and buried or cremated as the squatters did not want any evidence of their handiwork to be found. Sheep rapidly replaced the Aboriginal people that lived in harmony with nature for over 60,000 years. A Victorian Aboriginal population of over 100,000 had been decimated by European-introduced disease before the first squatters put a foot in Victoria. Only about 20,000 Aborigines survived the introduction of European diseases when Batman signed his dubious treaty with the Aborigines in 1835. Within 25 years of white colonisation, the Aboriginal population reduced to around 2,000. Tanaminaway's and Morbohina's execution were followed by the execution of three European bushrangers, Ellis, Jepps and Fogarty, who were publicly executed on the 5th of June 1842. On the 5th of September 1842, Fergara Akaputra, Roger the Russian, an Aboriginal man from the Port Ferry region, was publicly executed for the murder of Patrick Scott, a squatter who had a history of murdering Aboriginal people. Although there was a great deal of doubt about who committed the murder, it seems an Aboriginal, any Aboriginal, had to be hanged to set an example to Victoria's remaining Aboriginal population. Reverend Barry eventually became a Victorian Supreme Court judge. He was the judge who sentenced Ned Kelly to death. He died 60 years after the execution of Ned Kelly on the 11th of November 1880. In, 19, in 1847, John Davis, the hangman, was working as a self-employed shoemaker in Brighton in Melbourne. Judge Willis was removed from office for incompetence on the 24th of June 1843. He returned to England and lived the life of an English country squire. He died peacefully in his sleep in 1877. Now the struggle to establish the Tanaminaway Morbohina Monument in Melbourne was a 14-year struggle. The Tanaminaway Morbohina, I wrote the Tanaminaway Morbohina saga in 2004 
in an attempt to acquaint Australians with this particular story. This is a a beautiful story. It's a story about resistance. It's a story about injustice. It's a story about love. It's a story about courage. It's a story which should be encapsulated in one of the greatest movies of our time. Let's not forget that Tanaminawa and Panobina were man and wife. Traganini had a relationship with Morbohina. This is an extraordinary story, even if you forget about the background, which is impossible to forget. This is an extraordinary story of courage, of love, of injustice, of barbarity. It highlights the colonisation process in this country. And I am proud to have been the convener of the Tanaminawa Morbohina Commemoration Committee with my late wife, Ellen Jose, and all the other people in the committee and all the other people involved in that struggle, which eventually led to the erection of one of the first memorials to the frontier wars in this land. Isn't it about time that we started to remember and respect and honour on the 20th of January all those men, women and children, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who died protecting their way of life, their culture, their language, their families. We spend so much time honouring our soldiers who fought other people's wars overseas. Isn't it about time? We acknowledge the frontier wars and we honoured those men, women and children who paid the ultimate sacrifice. Join us on the 20th of January 2020, 19 days time, at the corner of Victoria and Franklin Street in Melbourne. Ceremony starts at uh, 12 o'clock. Speakers at 1pm, we silent walk the Queen Victoria markets where we assemble at what we think is the last resting place of Tanaminawa and Moorball here. This is a great Australian story which should be known by every man, woman and child. It is one of the first steps towards reconciliation between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. Reconciliation based on justice, not charity. Thank you for listening to The Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station. This program, the Tanaminuwe Morbohina Saga, has been broadcast on The Anarchist World this week, courtesy of the Community Radio Satellite. This program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3CR. Dot org dot au. That's 3cr.org.au. Go to the website, tanamall.org. Have a look at the full Tanaminawe and Moorborn Hina saga. See you on the 20th of January at the corner of Victoria and Franklin Street in Melbourne for the Tanaminawe and Moorborn Hina yearly commemoration. Uh, Carolyn Briggs, uh, Bunarong Elder, our patron of the Tanaminawe Moorborn Hina Committee, who has a foot in both camps, both in Victoria and uh, Tasmania, uh, will be uh, present on the day, giving uh, the welcome to country. Thank you once again. Thank you for listening to the Anarchist World this week, listening to the Anarchist World this week, next week on your local community radio station, listening next week to Joseph Toscano hosting the Anarchist World this week. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World This Week, Australia's Sacred Cow Slaughterhouse.
10am every Wednesday. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.